0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In 1935, Albert Einstein and a younger colleague named Nathan Rosen sent a controversial paper on gravitational waves to physical review. The editor sent the article to a reviewer for comments. This was part of a process that we now commonly call peer review. But when the editor reported back to Einstein with the reviewer's comments, Einstein was angry. We had sent you our manuscript for publication and had not authorized you to show it to specialists before it was printed, Einstein wrote. I see no reason to address the, in any case, erroneous comments of your anonymous expert. On the basis of this incident, I prefer to publish the paper elsewhere. The famous incident helped show that the process we call scientific peer review, by which experts in a field evaluate research before it's published, is relatively modern. And, as the COVID pandemic shows, it has its flaws, in terms of both false negatives and false positives. Much of the most valuable science on COVID-19 is being published without much scientific oversight. On the other hand, some leading journals have summarily reviewed and published research that has been shown to be erroneous. In some cases, ordinary people on the internet have actually debunked publications in famous journals. Joining me to discuss all this is Stuart Buck. Vice President of Research Integrity at the Laura and John Arnold Foundation in Houston, Texas, and a widely published expert on scientific methods. I spoke to him recently over the phone. Here are excerpts from our conversation. The common narrative you hear is that there's all this professional science being done, which is impeccable, but then once the media gets hold of it, the content of that science gets degraded in the messaging, and then social media further degrades it, and not just in regard to COVID-19, but other public health issues. My understanding is that you disagree with that narrative a little bit. Is that right?
2: I disagree that that's the entire narrative. I do think that happens sometimes. I mean, I think that both journalists and social media can exaggerate or distort or cherry pick from the scientific literature. But I think the opposite happens sometimes as well. And we're seeing it happen more and more there have been a lot of studies that have been coming out about COVID-19. As soon as this pandemic emerged, scientists from many disciplines, not just health-related disciplines, but economics, sociology, et cetera, psychology, started flooding the journals and the preprint servers, which are uh, websites that have papers that have not been actually peer-reviewed and published yet. flooded that with COVID papers. So there are now tens of thousands of papers about some aspect of COVID-19. And what happens is, a lot of times, even the ones that are in peer reviewed journals turn out to be incomplete or incorrect or overly hasty or even just outright in a couple of cases falsified. And the critiques from social media are what expose the problems. And in some cases, the falsification of scientific data that has occurred in the literature. So I think that yes, sometimes social media distorts scientific findings, but I think there's an equal counter push. That when scientific findings themselves are already distorted, what you see happening on social media is a lot of the top scientists in the world exercising peer review in real time and in a way that's much more thorough than the peer review process as as is typical at journals. So it's really interesting to watch.
1: So I guess in terms of the publication of scientific research, this is kind of a special case that we're going through, like a lot of journalists I've taken this very sudden interest in the daily email blasts from JAMA, for instance, Journal of the American Medical Association. And because of the urgent nature of the COVID 19 pandemic, there's articles coming out every day and they're fairly explicit. This is a preprint or this hasn't gone through the usual peer review process. But it sounds like because normal peer review channels aren't in operation, social media has become a kind of de facto emergency crowdsourced form of peer review. From what you're telling me, it's it's certainly better than nothing. In some cases, have there been lay people who have found errors in some of the scientific information?
2: Yeah. And actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. This wasn't scripted, but I have an example sitting right in front of me of an article in JAMA that was uh, refuted by just a practicing doctor on Twitter just the other day. So the study came out in JAMA just a few days ago, and it is reporting on a policy about wearing masks at a particular Massachusetts hospital, Mass General Hospital. And this article in JAMA claims that when this hospital adopted a mask requirement, which happened in kind of late March, early April, that the positivity rate of COVID tests went down in the month of April from 14.65% to 11.46%. Now, take a step back. The positivity rate, just so everyone knows, that refers to how many of the COVID tests that are administered turn out positive. So let's be clear, there was still a positive race. So they were still finding new COVID cases, but they were doing more tests and the positivity rate itself went down. Now, that's all they said. That's all they found. There was no actual comparison group. So you might start to wonder, well, what was happening At other health systems, what was happening in the rest of Massachusetts? So there's a doctor on Twitter who found that data in a state report that the state of Massachusetts issued. And this state report tells us what the positivity rate of COVID tests was for the entire state. And in the entire state of Massachusetts, over the same time period in April, the statewide positivity rate was cut almost in half. So it didn't just drop from 14% to 11%. It was cut almost in half. The statewide rate was around 30% and dropped to about 17%. So that's a much more substantial drop than occurred at one particular hospital. So it's quite a leap of faith to suggest that the policy at the particular hospital, which had less of an effect than the drop that was already happening in the rest of the state, it's hard to credit that to the mass policy. Now, I'm not saying masks don't work or that the mass policy is a bad idea. I'm just saying this study was not, in fact, good evidence for it. It was published in JAMA and then what seems to be a practicing doctor on Twitter noticed this and thought, this didn't make sense. The rate was dropping everywhere, so why are we singling out this one hospital? So you're seeing that happen with a lot of studies. It comes out in the literature, and then immediately people who may know more than the journal editors, because people on Twitter come from all kinds of backgrounds and specialties, and they can critique the finding or bring in extra data that they happen to know about in a way that the journal editors often are not prepared to do.
1: Do you think there will be any long-term reconsideration of the formal peer review processes that now exist in journals. I'm not saying replace those processes, but my understanding is that a lot of peer review processes function now kind of the way they did 40 years ago or 50 years ago, where you have a group of experts in the field and they pass judgment on an article because they're experts. But is there value in having a parallel track where you say, hey, it doesn't matter if you're an expert If you can spot basic methodological errors in this, let us know about it.
2: You know, I do think the concept of peer review is possibly in for some reconsideration. It's, in fact, a relatively recent innovation. So a lot of the famous scientific discoveries of the past were not subject to peer review. There's a funny letter I saw by Albert Einstein once where one of his early papers, I think, on relativity was sent out for peer review, and he wrote this indignant letter to the journal basically saying, how dare you subject my work to someone else's review? The way peer review happens is oftentimes the journal literature happens upon three or so people who are specialists in the field. Sometimes they're people who may have been kind of recommended by the person who submitted the article, either directly or indirectly, because people know that if you cite a particular other scholar a number of times, that person's name is signaled as an expert who might be able to peer review the article. So there are different ways of gaming the peer review process, but ultimately the peer reviewers They read the text of the article. They don't go back and re-examine the data. Oftentimes the data isn't even available for them to do that. They don't examine the computer code that people write to analyze data. Basically, they just look at the surface of the article and say, does this sound plausible? Overall, I think being able to subject a piece to the widespread criticism of dozens or sometimes hundreds of experts from many different fields, including statistics, Uh, You know, there are a lot of medical journal articles that have statistical errors in them and medical journals may not know to rely on statisticians for peer review. So then when statisticians on Twitter get a hold of a medical journal article that has statistical errors in it, then they go to town tearing it apart and explaining all the ways in which the statistical errors crept in. That to me is ultimately more of a pressure test and more of a trial by fire for those articles than the peer review process was.
1: Part of it comes down to timing. The velocity of science is so fast now. COVID-19 was discovered in the last days of 2019, and within a few weeks, the scientists already sequenced it. And within a few weeks after that, the effort to get a vaccine began almost immediately in many different countries. The peer review process, can it ever be expedited in a way that keeps up with this sort of thing?
2: That's a good question. I'm a little dubious of it. I mean, just anecdotally, what you often hear from journal editors is that it's hard enough to find people to do peer review in a formal sense at all, because any journal editor may have a limited set of contacts. They're not reaching out to every scientist in the world or every scientist on Twitter. So oftentimes they might spend weeks or months trying to get someone to peer review an article. And even when they do, there's no guarantee that that peer review, even if conducted on a basis that's not expedited, not rushed. There's no guarantee that that will catch all the errors. And there's a well-known experiment that the British Medical Journal, or BMJ, did in the mid-2000s. They published the results in 2008. They introduced nine major errors into manuscripts and then sent the manuscripts out to over 600 peer reviewers. What they found was that the peer reviewers, on average, uncovered about three of the nine major errors. Actually, the average was 2.58. So that's not good news. If you think peer review is going to catch major obvious errors, there's an experiment that shows that out of nine major errors, they found about two and a half.
1: Established scientific publication protocols, they already introduce all kinds of biases, like... Scientists who get results they don't want, they might choose just not to publish it. Would you say that there are biases and perhaps serious biases that distort the path of science embedded into the legitimate protocols that scientists are expected to follow?
2: Absolutely. I think it goes back to human nature in a way. I think we as humans are all biased towards positive and exciting results. And that's quite understandable. I mean, it's more exciting when... A publication comes out and says, here's a possible cure for cancer, as opposed to a publication that says, well, we tried a possible cure for cancer and found nothing. It doesn't work. And I think that just pervades our thinking. And it becomes a source of bias because the true scientific record should include all the false leads, all the ideas that didn't pan out. So take drugs as an example, drugs to treat disease. The fact that companies or doctors try a particular drug and find it doesn't work that's valuable knowledge because that prevents other people from chasing after the same drug in the hopes that it'll work. It's valuable for us to know it doesn't work. And there have been many documented cases of what's called publication bias towards positive results. So there's one famous study that reviewed something like 74 clinical trials on antidepressants that the FDA had reviewed. Exactly half of them, 37 of the trials, the FDA said indeed had positive results, the antidepressant worked. And Every single one of those trials, except for one, was published. So 36 out of 37 of those positive results got published in the medical literature. The other 37 trials were viewed as having negative or null results. With only three exceptions, all of those were either unpublished or were published in a way that was somehow spun into a positive outcome. That's even worse. So basically, the summary of the article is that if you looked at the published literature, it looks like 94% of the trials on these antidepressants were positive. But by contrast, the FDA that saw all the trials thought only half of them were positive.
1: And now, a brief commercial message. Since you're a Quillette podcast subscriber, I'm guessing you get automated software suggestions about other podcasts you might like. Well, here's a human suggestion from me. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which you can find through jordanharbinger.com or at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Jordan's podcast is famous. Apple named it one of its best podcasts in 2018 and one reason is that Jordan Harbinger himself is such an interesting guy. Like me, he was a lawyer before he got into media, but very much unlike me, he lived an amazing life as a world traveler, getting kidnapped in Mexico and then again in Serbia, and he also ran a tour company that took travelers to North Korea. A few recent episodes I've listened to feature Harbinger interviewing an astronaut, a former Islamist, and a guy who was investigated by the FBI because he was informed on by his mentally ill father. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. Just search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B, as in boy, I-N, as in Nancy, G-E-R. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. To take an example, if you're excited to report results, you say, so the results we got are statistically significant in the sense that if this were a purely random phenomenon, it would only manifest itself in this kind of result one out of 20 times. That's meaningful. It becomes less meaningful if there are 20 people around the country doing experiments. Predictably, one of them is going to hit the bonanza and get that outlier published, And then someone tries to replicate it and has a 95% chance of not being able to replicate it. The only way to account for that kind of thing statistically is to diarize their experiments, including those they don't publish, and somehow include those in the baseline.
2: Well, that's the solution that they've come to in the world of medicine and clinical trials. So clinical trials that are either funded by the U.S. federal agency that funds billions of dollars of medical research each year, or trials that are submitted to the FDA here for entry into the U.S. market, those trials have to be registered in advance on a website called clinicaltrials.gov. That was established about 20 years ago by federal law in the United States. As of 2007, those trials have to be registered on that website in advance. And then within a year after the trial is over, whoever did the trial has to come back to that website and say what the results were. Now, the compliance is imperfect. There have been people who have documented that. But in theory, if you have a website that has hundreds and thousands of records of every clinical trial that was started, whether it was finished, and if it did finish, what the results were, now you know the complete denominator of what the trials were that happened. And you can compare that against what actually ended up getting published in the literature, which, again, multiple people have done that, and they find inevitably that what gets into the published literature, into the JAMA's and the New England Journal, et cetera, that's much more spun towards positive results or positive trials.
1: The distinction here is that when you talk about the health sciences and you're doing clinical trials, especially on humans, there's a much larger institutional apparatus and protocols that are involved. When I was working in the engineering sciences, many of our experiments didn't involve people. We were experimenting on objects or even doing experiments at the microscopic level. So there's just much less of an institutional infrastructure there for getting permissions and clearing ethical hurdles. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about this weird subplot in terms of COVID-19 health science involving politically controversial drugs. Hydrochloroquine, I think, is that how you pronounce? It?
2: Hydroxychloroquine.
1: This is a subplot that I think would have been difficult to predict before the pandemic. It became this issue that one's Belief in the efficacy of these drugs became tied in with one's political beliefs about politics. In a strange twist, some of the studies debunking the efficacy of these drugs, I think at least one of those studies was retracted. It seems like this controversy, certainly it's made American politics look bad because you've had misinformation spread thanks to political factors, but it also seems to have tarnished at least some scientists who maybe they were making good faith efforts to correct the record. What are the lessons we've learned from the dispute about those drugs? You're
2: right. It has been overly politicized. It's like a comedy of errors from my perspective. I mean, I would say the politicization started when I think there were reports on Fox News and then Trump saw it and heard that hydroxychloroquine might work and started basically advertising for it in his press conferences and you would say things like, well, I'm not a doctor, but go ahead and try it. What can it hurt? So then that created a political reaction against the drug. And you're referring to an article that was published in Lancet, one of the top medical journals in the world, that ended up being retracted because there was this company called Surgisphere, S-U-R-G-I-S-P-H-E-R-E, that had purported to provide the data for this study and it purported to collect data from hundreds of hospitals around the world. But journalists started looking into it and they found that Surgisphere's only had a handful of employees, including a science fiction writer and an adult model. (laughs) I didn't know that. Even after the study was published, the get in touch link on Surgisphere's homepage went to a WordPress template for a cryptocurrency website. So (laughs) it quickly became apparent that it seemed impossible. This company that barely had any employees and had never done anything in medicine before had somehow aggregated data or even agreed to get data from hundreds of hospitals around the world, including ones in developing countries, and that somehow reconciled all the different coding systems and so forth, all in time to publish. It just seemed literally impossible. It would be impossible for a large pharmaceutical company to do this in the amount of time that it was claimed. So it quickly became apparent that the data was just somehow completely falsified and they retracted it. And I think there were other journals that had published data purportedly from this company that were embarrassed and retracted those articles as well. In the meantime, I think there have been a few randomized trials that have gone on regarding hydroxychloroquine. And those have, I would say, overwhelmingly, the ones that I've seen have come to fairly null results. So far, there was a trial sponsored by the NIH that was stopped early for futility, which is a common practice in clinical trials when they get to a certain point, say they're halfway through, and they say, okay, there's zero evidence that the drug is working. So we're going to go ahead and stop because it's not ethical to keep randomizing people to something that doesn't help. So ultimately, I think we'll know all the results of the clinical trials. But in the meantime, it's just been almost comical to see the exaggerations and sometimes outright fraud on both sides of that issue. It's both alarming, but comical as well.
1: To circle back to a point that we started out with, much as the misinformation is regrettable and might have had serious health consequences, you still did see social media and the lay media have a role in debunking some of the false claims.
2: Oh yeah, that Surgisphere case, that, that was a case where the peer-reviewed medical journal with all the prestige behind it absolutely failed. And it was critics on social media who immediately found out that this impossible that this company could have collected the data that it claims to have done. Yeah, it's a great example.
1: If you are not a medical specialist and you don't have time to go to JAMA and Lancet every day, are there sites that... You recommend as really comprehensive and highly reputable clearinghouses for health information, and not just how to put on a mask and stuff like that, but issues like pandemics and other pressing public health issues. There's a
2: great website that I would recommend. The name of it is COVID Explained. And the website is actually explaincovid.org. And it's a team of researchers at Brown University and Harvard Medical School who do a pretty good and thorough job of reviewing the literature on any number of issues, including lots of practical issues like, what do you do about childcare, What do I do about visiting my grandparents? And so forth, all related to COVID in some way. And that's a great place that a laid reader could go to find what's the latest consensus of experts after all is said and done, after all the critics and all the retractions, et cetera, what's actually left standing as good advice and good sign. I think that's a great website.
1: And presumably it includes information from the WHO, but is not beholden to the WHO, because I've heard the WHO has been critiqued in some regards.
2: Yeah, the WHO early on claimed that wearing masks is a bad idea. So there are a number of institutions that have made mistakes along the way.
1: Well, Stuart Buck, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast and stay healthy.
2: Thank you.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.